the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Clark Hilton is off today. It's also his birthday. We'll celebrate when he comes back next week. Today on the program, we're looking forward to a conversation with Congressman Ken Buck. He is a sitting congressman. He's the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington's Corruption is Worse Than You Think. And I can tell you, it's worse than you think. He'll be joining us later this hour. In the five o'clock hour, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Alan Hotchkiss, who is the U.S. Executive Director, and Lillian Uwaze, the program intern at Africa New Life, Let Every Child Dream. We're going to talk about the extensive work they are doing in Rwanda. During our Radiothon, we we, uh, focus with a laser um, on the uh, particular program that we are attempting to fund. So today, I wanted to give them an opportunity to talk more about the broader programs that Africa New Life is a part of from such humble beginnings. It's fascinating to see how God has expanded the ministry and the impact they're having on the small country of Rwanda. They'll be joining us at five o'clock. Well, yesterday morning, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Trinity Lutheran Church case against the state of Missouri, a case involving discrimination by the state and giving out public funding, uh, publicly funded grants. Well, Missouri has a grant program to offset the cost of resurfacing playgrounds with rubber surfaces made from recycled tires. Now, this helps the state reduce the number of tires in its uh, landfills. It makes playgrounds safer for kids. Everybody wins. Well, almost. Trinity Lutheran Church applied for a grant to resurface its preschool playground. And though its application met all the neutral criteria and was rated highly, Missouri uh, denied that application solely because it came from a church. Well, the state claims that uh, its constitution requires it to reject the church's request because of a no-aid provision that prevents public money from going to churches. More than three dozen states have similar laws known as the Blaine Amendments, which were enacted during the 19th century to uh, single out Catholic immigrants from rather for disfavored treatment. Well, Trinity Lutheran Church argues that using state funds to ensure its playground is safe for kids is a completely secular purpose, and the state sanctions uh, demonstrate a hostility to religion. Well, at the um, arguments, uh, lawyers for both sides faced a very active bench. The justices were talking over each other, trying to get in as many questions as they could in the allotted argument time. And it's no wonder the justices had a lot of time to think about this case since they granted review in January of 2016 and appeared to hold off in hearing the case until a ninth justice was confirmed. Well, right off the bat, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg asked David Cortman, an attorney from Alliance Defending Freedom representing T- Trinity Lutheran, why a 1947 case saying states don't have to fund the building of churches uh, doesn't dispose of, uh, of this case. Well, Courtman answered that the court also said states cannot deprive churches of government benefits, and that's just what Missouri did here. He explained that the justices should look at where the money would be going to a secular activity. When the Justice uh, Elena Kagan and... Uh, um, What's the word here? She analyzed uh, this uh, or uh, to another program to put computers in religious schools. Uh, Courtman said that this case is easier to decide because unlike computers, a playground doesn't enable any religious activity. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, she brought up the court's recognition of space between the establishment and the free exercise clauses that allow states some play in the in the joints. Uh, she mentioned the Blaine's Amendment that uh, which she called an admirable tradition in our nation. Uh, prohibits public funds from going to churches. Justice Samuel Alito asked Courtman if she agreed with Sotomayor that Blaine's amendment um, reflect an admirable uh, tradition. Courtman emphatically said no, highlighting the anti-Catholic bigotry that animated the passage of many of these laws. Well, Kagan then asked if Missouri's action falls within the space between the two clauses. Courtman explained that while states have tremendous leeway in how how they set up programs such as this, um, only for public schools, for example, 
Uh, Missouri was clearly singling out churches for disfavored treatment, something the play in the joints does not allow. Well, some of the justices were clearly concerned about how far states could take these no-aid provisions. Justice Stephen Breyer, he repeatedly pressed the lawyers, uh, lawyer singular representing Missouri, James Layton, uh, on whether states could decline to offer police and fire protection to churches. Layton explained that since those benefits are offered to everyone, there wouldn't be a concern about the state getting entangled in the business of a church or being seen as endorsing a church, both aspects of the Supreme Court's uh, convoluted establishment clause jurisprudence. Uh, uh, in selective programs such as the Recycling Tire Grant Program, Layton maintained that the state could make the decision to exclude churches in order to sidestep any establishment clause concerns. Well, Breyer, he asked about crossing guards since they were placed everywhere. And Layton simply said this uh, this case is different because it involves physical improvement of the church's property. Alito asked whether the state could disqualify religious students from a scholarship program based on academic credentials after the fact if too many religious students were earning the scholarship. Layton admitted that would pose an equal protection problem. Chief Justice John Roberts asked if the state could offer tours of its Capitol building to student groups but exclude groups from religious schools. Leighton replied that this would be another example of a universal benefit, so the, the state's concerns about entanglement with the church would not be valid. Justice Neil Gorsuch came back to this universal selective distinction later, asking why discrimination based on religious status is permissible in a selective uh, program, but not in a universal program. Well, Leighton fell back on the claim that since this involves a physical improvement to Trinity Lutheran's property, it's on the wrong side of the line and looks like state endorsement of religion. Well, Kagan pointed out that the state's entanglement and endorsement concerns would need to rise to a high level in order to burden the constitutional rights of its citizens, as did it did with Trinity Lutheran. In his brief rebuttal, Cortman pointed out that there is no endorsement problem, uh, problem rather here, because the state set out neutral secular criteria for its grant program, criteria that Trinity Lutheran met. He also took issue with the state's characterization that giving a one-time grant to the church would constitute entanglement. He explained that entanglement requires the state's ongoing intrusive involvement with the church, something that simply would not occur in Trinity Lutheran if they receive the grant. An issue lingering in the background was the Missouri governor's 11th hour decision to announce on Facebook that going forward, he will not exclude churches from this grant program. This would not, however, change the outcome for Trinity Lutheran. The church could apply for the grant a second time, but there are no guarantees that the governor would change his mind in the future. So that's not enough for the Supreme Court to choose not to decide this case. So what happens next? Well, the justices will deliberate and issue an opinion by the end of the court's term in June. Based on the questions that... Um, uh, argument uh, during the uh, hearing, a number of the justices appear to be concerned about the state's lack of a limiting principle on excluding religiously affiliated groups from state grant programs. If Trinity Lutheran wins the day, it will be a signal to states that they may not discriminate against churches under the guise of the Blaine Amendments. Now, what do uh, what does a playground have to do with religious liberty? One might ask. There are some larger issues at stake. Well, the case is significant for more than one reason. For starters, it represents Justice Neil Gorsuch's first major religious liberty case since joining the court. And while the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case before Justice Antonin Scalia's death last year, the court delayed oral arguments until nine justices were seated, suggesting concern there would be a 4-4 ruling otherwise. And while it's nearly impossible to predict what a new minted Supreme Court justice will do, Gorsuch's record on the, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, where he sided with Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor against Obamacare mandates, suggests he respects um, religious liberty. Yet, as the Daily Signal cautions, Gorsuch has yet to rule on a religious liberty funding case, so this could be a different territory. Now, perhaps even more notably in this case, this case could have tremendous impact nationwide, not only on public funding of religious institutions in general, but on school choice specifically. In 2002, the Supreme Court ruled in Zellman versus Simpson-Harris that including religious schools in school voucher programs does not violate the Constitution's establishment law. Now, Trinity could take this ruling one step further. As American Enterprise Institute Director of Education Policy Studies, Frederick Hex, uh, Hess rather, and Research Assistant Grant Addison explained, having determined in Zellman that states are constitutionally permitted to include religious schools in school choice programs, the court will now decide whether states 
states are prohibited from discriminating against religious schools when providing public services. Currently, 37 states have constitutional restrictions against using public funds for religious organizations. Again, the Blaine Amendments, named for Representative James Blaine, who in the late 19th century proposed a federal constitutional amendment prohibiting tax dollars designated for public education from going to religious sects. The amendment was the product of anti-Catholic bigotry. And although Blaine's federal amendment failed, 38 states implemented similar provisions. Missouri, in fact, used its own Blaine Amendment to deny Trinity Lutheran's grant application. The program has nothing to do with religion, and it will not fund the church's religious activities at all. But the Show Me State rejected the application on the basis of religion. Needless to say, then, the Supreme Court ruling that Trinity Lutheran cannot be excluded from competitive state grants solely because of its religious uh, status, its being in a religious institution, could have wide-reaching consequences. It's precisely because of this potential that groups from both Both sides of the culture war, from Lambda Legal and National Education Association to the Christian Legal Society and Institute for Justice and many others, have taken keen interest in this case. Now, it's not about whether a playground will be resurfaced. It's about whether our nation will continue twisting the First Amendment to make it as hostile to religion as possible. And while the court could dismiss the case, especially after Missouri's new governor recently announced a reversal in the state policy, the Supreme Court blog reporter Amy Howe concludes... It seems more likely the justices will issue a ruling. And if the line of questioning at yesterday's oral argument hints at any uh, at that ruling, rather, the majority may conceivably not be a slim one. How reports that Justice Stephen Breyer seemed unconvinced by some of the state's arguments and Justice Elena Kagan signaled the willingness to vote for the church. Of course, judicial reactions during oral arguments have led Uh, Many uh, prognosticators astray before, and this case still may come down to one vote while a ruling is issued, likely in late June. No matter the outcome, it is a ruling that uh, uh, impacts religious liberty and may do so for decades to come. Either such discrimination, Blaine amendments remain on the books in 38 states, or they're eroded and religious liberty gains ground. In this case, literal ground. We'll continue to follow the story, the case involving this church. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up but later, we're going to talk with Congressman Ken Buck. He's the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. It's a fascinating look at what happens behind the scenes in Washington. Well, in other news, mere days after Justice Neil Gorsuch was ceded to the Supreme Court, restoring the panel to full strength, the top Senate Republican said the court could soon be down a member once again. Wow. In turn, giving President Trump another big appointment. I would expect a resignation this summer, said Senator Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, speaking to uh, Iowa's um, uh, a journal there. Well, Grassley, who's a Republican out of Iowa, uh, said there was a rumored retirement in the offing, though he wouldn't disclose which justice was considering stepping down. Grassley's comments echo those made in February by fellow Judiciary Committee member and former Supreme Court uh, litigator Senator Ted Cruz. I think we'll have another Supreme Court vacancy this summer, Cruz said. Uh, if it happens as much as the left is crazy now, they will go fully Armageddon Uh, This next time around, well, Grassley predicted any new Supreme Court nominee would come from the list of potential justices put forward by candidate Trump before he won the election. Gorsuch also came from that list. And despite bipartisan testimonials in favor of his confirmation, Senate Democrats led a fierce resistance to his seating and ultimately forced the Republicans to change the Senate rules, the precedent by enacting the so-called nuclear option following Uh, the threat of filibuster. Uh, Because of that, a Supreme Court nominee would only need 51 votes to be approved in the high court or to the high court. Republicans currently have 52 seats in the Senate, all uh, but ensuring any GOP favored nominee would sail through. Gorsuch uh, 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 heard his uh, first argument as a justice uh, on Monday. And uh, again, this summer could mean another showdown. And while Justice Kennedy, 80, is oft rumored to be considering retirement, there are several justices whose advanced age could signal a coming retirement. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she's awake, she's 84. Stephen Breyer, 78. If any of uh, that trio were to retire and be replaced by a reliably conservative justice, the court would noticeably lurch rightward. Uh, Ginsburg and Breyer are largely considered to be among the court's more liberal jurists, while Kennedy is known as a swing vote.
vote. So these may or may not be offhand comments, but it seems to me they probably are not. We'll have to wait and see. Well, courtesy of the Russian Defense Ministry, you can now take a tour of Russia's newest military base. Well, a virtual tour anyway. And some are asking, is this a new Cold War in the Arctic? Well, the base dubbed the Arctic Trefoil, uh, due to its uh, three-point surface, or rather structure, was built on Franz Joseph Land. Um, and uh, archipelago in the remote region of the Arctic. Well, the 14,000-square-mile complex, which will house about 150 personnel for up to 18 months, will serve in a capacity of protecting Russian airspace and other interests in the region. With the help of the web application, Defense Ministry website visitors will be able to interactively assess the convenient and ergonomic modular layout of the base, which allows the Russian military to perform service and combat tasks in the hardest natural and Uh, climactic uh, conditions in the Arctic, according to the Russian Defense Ministry spokesperson. Alaska Republican Senator Dan Sullivan, who told Fox News' Brett Baer back in January of 2016 that there are all kinds of countries that are interested in the critical strategic importance of the Arctic, said he is concerned about the completion of this new base. And while seemingly a modest investment, the construction of this base sends a clear message to the Arctic community about Russia's ongoing militarization uh, of this strategically important region. He went on to say the Russians make claims of wanting a peaceful Arctic, but their actions, building bases, ports, conducting snap exercises with thousands of troops, installing surface to air missiles and conducting bear bomber flights close to the American air uh, airspace seem to reveal their real intent. Russia has been building up its Arctic military infrastructure for several years, starting with President Vladimir Putin's uh, 2014 announcement, establishing an Arctic command structure in April of that year. Putin addressed the uh, Russian Security Council meeting saying the country should strengthen the military infrastructure. Specifically, he said, I'm referring to the creation of a unified system of naval bases for ships and next generation submarines in our part of the Arctic. Again, a new Cold War in the Arctic? It's a legitimate question. Well, House Republicans are shopping around a new Obamacare replacement plan amid pressure to deliver a legislative win as the president nears the end of his first 100 days. We're very close, says House Speaker Paul Ryan uh, on Wednesday at the event in London. Well, uh, we're being told to hope uh, that they hope uh, to have revised legislative text in the coming days. And lawmakers are set to discuss the, the proposal on a conference call this weekend. Now, keep in mind, they're on recess at this point. It's not clear uh, when such a plan could hit the House floor or what level of support it might have. Congress is currently on recess and lawmakers won't return until next week. Uh, We are being told that uh, leaders have not yet tried tallying support for the uh, document on Capitol Hill. The question is whether it can get uh, 216 votes in the House, and the answer isn't clear at this time. Senior GOP aide says there is no legislative text and therefore no agreement to do a uh, a whip count on. So there's no legislative text, which kind of raises questions. Anyway, a White House source said that they could potentially have a vote by the end of next week, though they put the chances of that at 50-50. It's a bit optimistic if there is no legislative text. But nonetheless, the failure in March to pass an earlier replacement bill for the Affordable Care Act with widespread criticism of the plan marked a major setback for Trump early uh, early on. He has since turned his attention to foreign affairs, especially the Syrian crisis, but continues to press for a new health care plan, blaming a block of House conservatives for the March meltdown. Well, complicating any renewed effort uh, is next Friday's deadline for Congress to pass a new budget measure. It'll be a continuing resolution. Congressional Republicans and the Trump administration will have uh, to court Democrats to avoid this scenario. Uh, The timetable is tight with the House uh, not set to return until Tuesday night. Uh, Interestingly, the government shutdown drama in health care could be directly linked. Just days ago, the president declared he would yank subsidies known as cost-sharing reductions from Obamacare programs. The government directs the uh, CSR programs to insurers who grant coverage to low-income people. A dried-up subsidy would force insurers to drop Obamacare and spike premiums for the poor. Trump views the Obamacare subsidies as leverage to force Democrats to the table on health care. Democrats contend the president is holding the health care assistance hostage and imperiling those who aren't well off. In the middle, of course, is the uh, are the American people who suffer, stand to suffer uh, either way. The spending bill cannot be done by one party alone, opined uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell before the recess. These bills can't pass without a reasonable number of Democrat supporters in the Senate. They know that and the Republicans know 
um, that they are dependent on them as well. Hmm. Well, we were speaking a moment ago of Russia. They have objected to a Security Council, a U.N. Security Council statement proposed by the U.S. on Wednesday that would have condemned North Korea's missile test despite China's support of that measure. Now, interestingly, the U.N. is so impotent to have a real impact that they can't even seem to muster enough support with Russia's objection, the permanent members' objection, to um, a statement that condemns North Korea's missile tests. Well, the Security Council diplomat familiar with the negotiations confirmed that the draft press statement was approved by China, the North's closest ally, as well as other permanent members of the Security Council. Russia, on the other hand, was the lone dissenter. Russia is slowing this down, and it's not clear why. One can speculate the U.S. wanted to get the message out. That may be the reason why right there. Well, they report that the Russian mission to the U.N. responded to the delay late Wednesday, conceding that they wanted language from earlier statements included when we requested to restore the agreed language that was of political importance and expressed commitment to continue to work on the draft with the uh, pen holder. The U.S. delegation, without providing any explanations, canceled the work on the draft, claiming that it was Russia who had blocked the statement, a Russian diplomat told CBS News. So they're saying it's not us, it's the U.S., well, the statement includes a Security Council demand that the Democratic People's Republic of Korea conduct no further tests. It also states that North Korea's illegal ballistic missile activities are contributing to its development of nuclear weapons. China has been slow to support statements condemning North Korea, but was willing to sign on to this message Wednesday. Uh, U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley circulated the missive in her role, or rather, uh, as the president of the Security Council for the month of April. At this point, things are stalled. And finally, with a new White House, uh, many have have wondered about the fate of the 2015 nuclear agreement made between the Obama administration and Iran. The Trump administration's stance on the agreement became a little clearer on Tuesday when the administration notified Congress that Iran is complying with the terms of the agreement and that the United States would therefore extend the sanctions relief granted to Iran as part of that agreement. Secretary Tillerson, in a letter to House Speaker Paul Ryan, wrote that Iran remained compliant with the agreement, but that the administration was concerned about Tehran's support of terrorism and its reviewing whether to continue suspending sanctions as required under the deal. Congress mandated that the State Department must notify it every 90 days about Iran's compliance with the nuclear obligations. The letter on Tuesday was the first such notification by the Trump administration. Up next, we're going to talk with Congressman Ken Buck. He is the author of the book titled Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. He's a sitting congressman and what he reveals in the book, and by the way, he names names, will shock you. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I think you and I would both agree that Americans are fed up with the corruption in Washington. Nothing proved this more than the election of Donald Trump. They know politicians from both sides of the aisle play fast and loose with taxpayer dollars in order to further their own political agendas, but they don't know the half of it. Well, Congressman Ken Buck is blowing the whistle on the real-life house of cards that is our nation's capital in his explosive new book we've been referencing all week, Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. Now, can you imagine it could possibly worse than you th- be worse than you think it is? Lavish parties, committee champion, uh, chairmanships for sale, pay-to-play corruption, backroom arm twisting, votes on major legislation uh, going to the highest bidder, and Congressman Buck is naming names. He has witnessed firsthand how the unwritten rules of Congress prioritize short-term political gain over principled leadership. When other members of Congress dared to do what they believe to be right for the American people instead of what the party bosses commanded. He saw them stripped of committee positions and bullied and threatened into falling into line by leadership. The book is shocking in its revelations, but practical in its plans for reform. Congressman Buck's book, Drain the Swamp, is the book, the one book you need to understand how President Trump's campaign slogan could become reality. Well, Congressman Ken Buck is a Republican from the Windsor, uh, representing Colorado's 4th Congressional District. He has uh, was first elected to Congress in November of 2014 and is currently serving his second term in the United States House of Representatives. He serves on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Committee on Rules. He serves on the Judiciary Subcommittees on Immigration and Border Security and Crime, Terrorism, Homeland Security and Investigations. He learned the value of hard work from his grandfather who opened a shoe repair store in Greeley in the 1930s. 
30s. One of three brothers, he uh, worked his way through high school, college, and law school as a janitor, truck driver, furniture mover, and as a ranch hand. After law school, he worked for Congressman Dick Cheney on the Iran-Contra investigation and then became a prosecutor with the U.S. Department of Justice. In 1990, he joined the Colorado U.S. Attorney's Office, where he became the chief of the criminal division. Starting in 2004, he was elected Weld County District Attorney three times. He led a staff of more than 60, uh, and uh, the crime rate there dropped more than 50 percent, one of the best records in the country. Ken is a Christian. He's a leader in the, his profession and community. His wife, Perry, is currently a representative in Colorado's house. They live in Windsor where he owns a small business and he joins us today to talk about something lots of people have been talking about, draining the swamp. But the subtitle, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. Congressman Buck, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Georgine. Thank you for having me with you. Say it isn't so that corruption in Washington could possibly be worse than many of us think. You know, I went to D.C. with a, a, a general idea that things were broken, um, because when you look at the result, the $20 trillion in debt and the $100 trillion of unfunded liabilities, it's clearly broken. But when I got there and I saw the specifics, I, I do believe it's, it's worse than we think. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I've been making brief references to uh, your book and revelations in the book uh, all week. And some of it's just, uh, you know, I've worked in a congressional office years ago, and it's it was shocking to me to learn some of the things that you reveal. You actually name names in Drain the Swamp. Uh, how difficult is that going to make life for you? And what do you hope ultimately will you will accomplish by revealing what's really going on? You know, Georgine, I, I didn't go to D.C. with any friends, and I'm not going to leave with any friends, and, and I'm just fine with that. I, I'm going there because I think we need to uh, fix the system. I think we need to change the incentive structure in Washington, D.C., and I'm going to do my very best to get that done, and, and I'm going to leave. I'm not going to spend that much time there. So uh, I, I think that uh, if there is retribution, if there is uh, pushback, that's okay. Uh, I've, I've raised an issue that needs to be raised, and, and uh, people need to work on it. I think most of us imagine, yeah, there's corruption in Washington, but my guy certainly is not a part of that. In naming names, you help us to better understand who we're talking about. But give us some examples of the kind of corruption that you were surprised to learn was fairly commonplace. And when all of this began. Yeah, and I know that it uh, it was there when I was there, uh, when I got there. I'm not sure how early it began. But one example is the, the idea that you have to pay for a committee assignment or committee chairmanship. If you want to be on an A committee, for example, appropriations, ways and means, energy and commerce, you need to pay uh, dues of $450,000. If you want to be a chair of one of those committees, you need to pay dues of $1.2 million. And, and oftentimes, individuals hold receptions for uh, folks to come, to, uh, lobbyists, to show up and write checks to the National Republican Congressional Committee, and the Democrats have the same system in place. And the, uh, the lobbyists expect something in return. And it's a, it's a corrupting influence in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that was um, was most shocking to me is the, the cost of serving on these committees. It, it says something about, um, you know, the, the expectation that influence peddling comes with a price tag. And uh, again, this this is a system that's been in place for for some time, making uh, certain posts available to some and less so to others. Uh, it, it calls into question how principled are the leaders who are currently in those positions? You know, they've, they've uh, uh, accepted the, the, the norm, the, the, the situation, um, and, and I've asked the Ethics Committee to, to make it unethical for members uh, to consider uh, fundraising in the application of uh, or in the decision to to appoint someone to a committee or or to a chairmanship. And at this point, they're considering that, or are you optimistic that that might actually happen? I hope it happens, and I hope enough people read the book and talk to their congressmen and uh, make phone calls and send emails and, and get involved that we can actually clean up a, a small part of the corruption that we're talking about. There are many other things that uh, we talk about in the book, but uh, that that's one small thing that I think would, would really go a long ways to helping. Absolutely. One of the things you write about is the fact that one-third of the discretionary spending in the federal budget is actually 
illegal and could be cut immediately. Talk a little bit about that, because I think the presumption is, you know, these are principled leaders, they're statesmen, and they're making decisions that are in the best interest of the American people and certainly are are uh, functioning uh, within the law. I, I use the example of the Endangered Species Act. It was passed in 1973, and there was a five-year sunset on that, as there is uh, with almost every program that's, that's uh, passed in Congress. Uh, so, it, it, And many people voted for it because it had a five-year sunset on it. So at the end of five years, if it wasn't reauthorized, the program would, would go away. And, and it had to be... Uh, it had to be examined. Uh, Congress had to do oversight on the program in case it needed to be amended. It was reauthorized once in 1978 and has not been reauthorized since. So since 1984, it is an unauthorized program, and it receives appropriations. It receives funding uh, so that it can continue. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge mistake, and it's, a, and it's a big reason why Congress is so dysfunctional. Uh, but but one third, five hundred billion dollars of the federal budget is uh, appropriated money to unauthorized programs. Some of those programs are good programs. I think the State Department and the FBI are unauthorized at this point. We don't want to uh, shut down those agencies, but we want Congress to do its job and do its oversight. One of the art forms in Congress is to avoid taking tough votes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, the, it's one of the reasons why we don't have oversight on, on some of these programs. Yeah, and I think that's been a, a, an ongoing frustration by many of, of uh, your constituents, not yours in particular, but you know, taxpayers across the country, is this uh, unwillingness to, uh, uh, to do the job that we think we're sending uh, men and women to Congress to do. Absolutely right, and and uh, it's it's it, you know there are reports that are written by the uh, government accounting office. Uh, various inspector generals point this out, uh, and there's plenty of research in this area. And and yet, because there isn't enough pressure on Congress to get this job done, they they just ignore it. Mm. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon uh, with Congressman Ken Buck. He's the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. It's a must read if you want to understand the term and what it applies to. And he goes into detail that I think you'll find, as I did, shocking. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. But first, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, talking with Congressman Ken Buck. He is the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. I think it's important for us to understand uh, what we're talking about when the phrase is applied to what happens in Washington. And I appreciate, uh, Congressman Buck, your willingness to not only point out some of the areas that need attention, but also to name names so that we know precisely what and whom we're talking about. Uh, One of the things you write about is the constitutional remedy that's just waiting to be used that could drain the swamp of Washington corruption faster than anything else. What's in place already that we might look to? Uh, Article 5 of the Constitution provides the the two methods for amending the Constitution. And the the first uh, way of amending the Constitution is the, the method that has been used throughout our history, and that is for Congress to uh, uh, create the amendment and pass the amendment uh, by a two-thirds vote in, in each House of Congress, send it to the states, and have three-quarters of the states uh, ratify that. And when once uh, three-quarters of the states ratify it, then it becomes a, an amendment to the Constitution. The, the second way, which hasn't been used, but I think is, is necessary in, in this situation, is to have a convention of the states. And, and that is uh, each state legislature or uh, uh, the state legislatures petition Congress for a convention of the states. And um, Congress then convenes a convention. The convention drafts the language, and the uh, in three-quarters of the states then must approve that language. So it is a, a method, uh, and I think it needs to be used for uh, a balanced budget amendment and term limits in Congress. I don't think Congress will ever limit its ability to spend money, nor will it ever limit its time in Congress. In your, the section of uh, the chapter, Cri- uh, Crisis of Character, you have a segment, uh, Government and Crisis, in which you uh, remind us of 
the statement made by Rahm Emanuel, who was President-elect Obama's uh, chief of staff, say you never let a, a serious crisis go to waste. And then you point out that uh, the the continuing practice of a series of continuing resolutions, we're in the process of perhaps facing another uh, of them. Um, talk a little bit about government by crisis and, uh, th- again, this this idea of an unwillingness to take responsibility for the for the very job that members of both the House and the Senate are um, expected to do? Well, uh, we have an appropriations process where the, it starts with a budget being passed, and then that sets the, the cap for each of the appropriations bills, the 12 appropriations bills that need to be passed. Uh, what has happened since I've been there is the, uh, the 12 appropriations bills have not been considered and the result is that the uh, we have to pass a continuing resolution at the end of the year to keep the government funded, uh, and that oftentimes results in uh, step two, which is an omnibus bill to fund the government for the remainder of the fiscal year. The problem with that system is there's no transparency. We get that omnibus bill uh, a day or two before we need to vote on it. It's thousands of pages long. It's It's got tons of... Uh, uh, pork and special projects that are, that are put in there that are almost impossible to find. And so, uh, it is really a way of, of hiding, uh, from the public and from members of Congress what's going on. Is there a way to to get around that? Are are there enough members in Washington who say, look, enough is enough? We've seen freshman class come in and say, we're here to do, uh, to do a job. They seem very sincere. And then they come up against the system that, uh, prevents them from being successful. Are you optimistic that there's a way to get get through that, to get around it, to get past it, to break this uh, this um, logjam, if you will, of how things are done in Washington? Uh, you know, I think that the only way we're going to change the culture in Washington is from the outside and, and forcing a culture change with a, a convention of the states and, and with individuals going to uh, town hall meetings and asking their congressmen about the ethics rules and, and some of the changes uh, that I suggest to, to avoid this pay-to-play system and, and other uh, transparency uh, bills that uh, are, are introduced so that we know what kind of spending is going on. Uh, I don't think that, that Congress is going to change itself. It's been doing what it's doing for so long that uh, it's really on autopilot unless we uh, force some changes mm-hmm. from the outside. Is President Trump taking the necessary steps to drain the swamp? I think he is. I think he's done a great job in appointing the uh, the cabinet that he has. And I think when you look at the Secretary of Education and you look at the uh, Administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency and the Director of the Office of Management and Budget, all people that, that uh, came from outside the uh, a particular area or agency and uh, will really uh, give great scrutiny to the expenditures that are going on. And so I think the the first step uh, is to appoint people that are skeptical about the role of the federal government in different areas. And I think he's done a great job. We'll have to. It's too early to tell Mm -hmm. uh, whether he... At the end of the book, in the appendix, you offer an application for a convention of the states under the Article 5 of the Constitution of the United States. You also include um, uh, the uh, sections of the Constitution. Um, I'm encouraging our listeners to read the book and to think carefully about the role that we might play in addressing uh, the very complaints that many of us have had for, for many years. Again, are you optimistic that the American people, if well-informed, would be willing to move in this direction rather than simply accept business as usual because it allows us to get what we want, even at the expense of uh, things that we might oppose. Uh, absolutely. I'm very optimistic about that. And that's why I wrote the book. It, it took a long time to do the research and, and to put it together with my co-author. But I, I think it's absolutely essential to make sure that uh, Americans have the information they need so that when they are acting, they're acting with the truth on their side. And uh, I believe they'll, I think they will be successful as a country. Are you seeing others in the House in this uh, this class? Are you seeing others who um, hold to the same principled view of leadership that you've articulated in the book? 
I am, and, and I'm actually seeing it in a bipartisan way. Uh, I've introduced legislation, and I've written letters, and I've had Democrats and Republicans join me. Uh, not, you know, not uh, uh, over 200 members, but 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 in the uh, in the in the dozen to 20 uh, members right now, and, and I'm just working hard to get others to join. And that's going to take some effort by the American people to make sure that those members know that people are watching. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, the title of the book is Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. Congressman Buck, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today, but more importantly, uh, write the book that helps us to think through how we can, in fact, drain the swamp and the role that we can play as private citizens. Thank you very much. It's been great to be with you today. Thank you. Uh, by the way, the book is published by Regnery. Uh, just to give you some uh, indication of what it costs to serve in these leadership positions, if you are the uh, deputy whip, $2.5 million. You've got to raise that money. Conference chair, $5 million. Whip, $5 million. Majority leader, $10 million. Speaker, $20 million. How do you raise that kind of money? And what, uh, what influence do you, have to, uh, uh, do you have to offer in order to raise that kind of money? Fascinating book. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with Alan Hotchkiss. He's the U.S. Executive Director of uh, Africa New Life. And Lillian Uwaze, she's the program intern there. We're going to talk about all the things that they're doing that we don't get an opportunity to talk about during a radiothon. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You may have heard earlier today that there was a shooting in France today, in Paris, on the Champs-Élysées. In fact, one police officer killed, another injured. There's been, uh, there have been updates. Uh, two others injured in that shooting at the famed Paris uh, location. A gunman opened fire late today, uh, local time, on the famed Champs-Élysées shopping district in Paris. Uh, apparently, the attacker targeted police uh, guarding the area near the Franklin Roosevelt subway station at the center of the avenue popular to tourists. And we've just learned uh, this afternoon that ISIS has taken responsibility for the attack. The attacker was apparently known by Secret Service in Frank in France, rather, and authorities warned people in the heart of France, the capital, to avoid this area, at least for the time being. The incident today was similar to two recent attacks on soldiers providing security at prominent locations around Paris. One at the Louvre Museum in February and one at the airport last month. The attack came three days before the first round of balloting in France's tense presidential election. And in fact, the candidates have, at least for the time being, suspended their campaigns. And security is high preceding the vote after police said they arrested two men Tuesday in what they described as a thwarted terror attack then. France has been in the state of emergency following a series of attacks there, including in November of 2015, uh, which targeted the Bataclan Concert Hall and the Stade de France Sports Arena in Paris and the deadly truck attack in Nice on Bastille Day in um, uh, July of last year. The state of emergency has been extended by several parliamentary votes and remains in effect. And my guess is it will remain in effect for some time to come. This is just one other example that illustrates the 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 level of danger that uh, the world faces at this time. I suppose it's really not new. We're perhaps better informed these days about what's happening around the world than before. But then there's an incident here in Happy Valley. Authorities are searching for a man who they say uh, set another person on fire at a Happy Valley Denny's restaurant on Wednesday night. According to the Clackamas Sheriff's Office, the man walked into the restaurant about 9 p.m. He sat down. He threw gasoline on a customer, then lit that victim on fire with a book of matches and simply walked away. The suspect left the restaurant, ran south on Southeast uh, 82nd Avenue. The victim, 69-year-old man, he's in critical condition at Legacy Emanuel Hospital, a hospital rather, and the suspect and victim apparently didn't know each other. The suspect was described as 5 foot 10, uh, a medium um, to muscular build, a lighter skinned complexion. He's uh, in his mid-20s wearing a black uh, flat-rimmed hat, although I'm sure he's wearing something else now. Um, but one observer said, you wonder what's uh, what's in the suspect's mind that he would uh, do this to a complete stranger. Detectives were looking into the possibility that this is related to another incident that took place earlier this week in a theater. Uh, a person threw gasoline on a stranger at the Clackamas Town Center movie theater. Uh, they hadn't talked about the incident publicly because... Um, well, they had a number of reasons for that. They didn't make the incident public based on an interview with the victim who seemed to think the incident was some kind of joke. 
in retrospect, I'm certain they're thinking how lucky they were that that it wasn't followed by uh, an ignition. They will now interview that person again to try to find out what uh, they may have may know about the uh, the perpetrator. Uh, the Denny's uh, on Thursday morning uh, sent this email saying that we are deeply disturbed by the senseless random act of violence that took place at our franchise owned Happy Valley restaurant. And our thoughts and prayers are with our guest uh, that was seriously injured. Both guests and team members acted quickly to help this guest and ensure the safety of others in the restaurant. We are actively assisting authorities in their investigation. Just a random, unexpected event. And then there's this. It's um, it really struck me because Aaron Hernandez was a, a Patriots football player. He was very successful. He had a, a tremendous, a forty million dollar contract to play for the team. Um, he was later uh, accused of being involved in a murder. He was convicted of that murder. Stood trial. Uh, just uh, the last couple of days in which he was acquitted of having killed two other people. His team on the very day that the event I'm going to reference here in a moment took place was visiting the White House to celebrate one of the uh, uh, the biggest Super Bowl upsets in Super Bowl history. Well, this is what the news headline said. And this is, we're, again, we're talking about a 27-year-old whose life now was to be spent in prison uh, since he was sentenced some years ago for the first murder uh, when corrections officers found Aaron Hernandez hanging from a bedsheet in his Massachusetts prison cell on Wednesday, the words John 316 were written on his forehead and on the wall. Now, there's been some challenge as to whether or not he did, in fact, um, commit suicide or there is some other nefarious activity. But uh, they tell us that he had um, made efforts to block the uh, the doorway into his cell, uh, I suppose, to delay anyone entering it. If uh, if that report is to be believed, but the words were written with a red marker and a Bible was left open uh, to those lines. The verse which uh, we are familiar with says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I think about this 27 year old who is despairing in his uh, his cell while his teammates are at the White House receiving accolades from the leader of the free world. and, And here he is. Um, serving a life sentence. Guards found the former New England Patriot uh, star shortly after 3 a.m. at the state prison uh, at the the, uh, corrections uh, center. The former light end was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead about an hour later. Officials spent Wednesday gathering evidence from the cell. They reviewed surveillance videos, spoke to the uh, prison staff and so on. A suicide note wasn't found in the cell, and officials said there was no indication that Hernandez was suicidal. Otherwise, uh, he would have been transferred to the mental ill uh, mental health unit and would not have been left alone. Uh, alone. Hernandez was 27. He died five days after a jury acquitted him of the 2012 shooting deaths of two men whom prosecutors alleged he gunned down after one accidentally spilled a drink on him at a Boston nightclub. He was already serving a life sentence for the 2013 slaying of a semi-pro football player. Uh, who was dating the sister that of Hernandez's fiance? Um, he was a star tight end at the University of Florida. He was dropped to the fourth round of the NFL draft because of trouble in college that included a failed drug test and bar fight. His name also had been had come up in an investigation into a shooting. Uh, he was a productive uh, tight end for the Patriots. He played there for three seasons. Was eventually dropped uh, because of his um, his violent. Uh, behavior and ultimately for which he was uh, found guilty. Um, one of his neighbors uh, who had grown up with him, he was familiar with the family. He was a friend of Hernandez, said he couldn't um, he probably couldn't bear the weight of the squandered oppor- uh, opportunities he had been given. He had a 40 million dollar contract, just a life uh, thrown away. I hope we are approaching life with a level of sobriety that that it merits. Uh, My heart is just broken as you read stories like this. And I tell you, I read dozens of them a day where individuals um, perpetrate acts of violence on strangers, on family members, where people are overcome by perhaps the weight of their own guilt and shame and in their their lives. And I think what a tremendous environment we find ourselves in as followers of Christ to make a difference in in uh, the world that we're in. I think about this kid who apparently, well, 20-year-old, who, who doused someone with gasoline and set him on fire. That's somebody's neighbor. He lives in somebody's neighborhood. He's a family member of somebody. And I wonder how many people uh, have contact with this person who is clearly disturbed um, and whether or not we're we're the light that we ought to be. I'm not saying we can prevent these kinds of events necessarily, but I am saying we have opportunities to influence. And I hope we're sober enough in life 
um, that we recognize the tremendous responsibility and privilege we have of sharing the gospel. And then I came across this story on uh, Oregon Live that um, was so moving to me. The headline read, New Widow with Five Kids Finds Faith in Her uh, is Her Rock After Horrific Crash. Uh, Jessica Bates is the subject of the story, and she remembers looking as the story uh, goes, and again, this is Oregon Live, at the clock in the expedition as her husband David drove down Eastern Oregon Highway on that cold, overcast January day. The clock was 7 a.m. We were doing well, time-wise, she said. David, a radiology manager, Jessica, an ultrasound technologist, were headed to their jobs at St. Olfanus Medical Center in Ontario. One moment, the road looked as it did every other day of the year. The next moment, a vehicle was almost on top of them. Neither she or her husband had time to say a word. She remembers the sound of the impact. Then a black curtain fell over her. She doesn't spend much time reflecting on fate. She's trying to put her life together, even as the man accused of crashing into their vehicle uh, sits in the Malheur County Jail. He's accused of aggravated murder for the deaths of David Bates, her husband, and for the death of Anita Harmon, his third ex-wife. He apparently stabbed to death before the event took place. And he's accused of assault for injuring Jessica. The story of Tony Montwheeler, that's the perpetrator's name, took a twist when records reveal he had admitted to faking mental illness to avoid prison after an earlier conviction. He'd been released from the state mental hospital after revealing uh, the ruse available records establish that he ran um, a, a medical con for some 20 years, insisting to a string of state psychiatrists and psychologists that he was mentally ill. He did so to evade state prison uh, where he would uh, uh, have been sent if he was convicted of kidnapping his first wife and son in 1996. Uh, one might expect Jessica to hate this man who sat behind the wheel of the truck that snuffed out the life of her husband but she views the events through a lens of forgiveness and hope. She sees Montwheeler as someone very far from God. To Jessica, that is the saddest fact at all, of all. rather. The kids and I have been praying for him, she says. I can only speak in terms of forgiving him. She remembers regaining consciousness. She turned toward the driver's seat looking for her husband. She didn't find him there. She was in and out of consciousness. Uh, ultimately, when she was taken by ambulance to the, Lotus, uh, to the closest hospital, she asked again about her husband, and it wasn't until his family uh, arrived and explained that uh, her husband, David, was gone. About an hour, hour later, as she lay in the hospital bed, uh, she finally received the news she had anticipated. In a finite moment of time, the Oregon Life article points out, uh, on a stretch of highway, Jessica Bates, who's 35, traveled from a wife to a widow and a single mother of five children. They had been married 13 years. Early on that gray morning in January, David and Jessica had gone into the regular routine. They loaded the kids and drove uh, to David's sister's house, dropped them off, headed to work. On the way, they chatted, deeply religious. They had prayed for some friends and family members. It was a normal start of the day. It was filled with the obligations of two young people, kids, breakfast. They headed to work. She admits since the crash that she had um, uh, has had some hard days, tough moments. Sometimes memories flood over her and she reels, but only for a short time. She has children to raise. She has a life to live. And most importantly, she has her faith. She says, faith in God is the biggest help I have. I feel like God is my rock. He is the one who gives me hope. To Jessica, forgiveness is not just another expression. The world hold the word rather holds real power, significance, strength. She draws inspiration from Jesus Christ. The ultimate example is Jesus on the cross, facing people who were murdering him, she says. Jesus forgave those who were killing him. She feels she must also forgive. So she doesn't focus on her challenges. She works to forgive the man police say drove head, in, head on into the vehicle that killed her husband. And she wonders about others impacted by the incident, including Harmon's family. She was found stabbed to death in the vehicle that hit she and her husband head on. It hurts to think about the other victims and her family. And through her response to this event, through the loss of her husband and her decision as a follower of Christ to respond in the way that she believes he would respond, she's having an impact on the world around her. She's not self-focused. She's not self-pitying, although she does, as uh, the article points out, have her moments. But she has decided as a follower of Christ, she's going to uh, she's going to follow him in every way in response and, and in every circumstance following these events. I hope we as followers of Christ today are taking seriously our placement in our respective jobs, in our city, um, in the families that we're in, in the neighborhoods that we're in, that we have tremendous opportunity to influence 
to extend the love of Christ because we don't know who's there. We don't know if the kid down the street is the one who doused gasoline on someone. We don't know who's going to lose a spouse in the near future. We just have no idea, but we have such tremendous opportunity. And these sobering stories remind me that uh, that we're here for a purpose, and it's not just to be entertained or to be informed. It's uh, it's to be obedient to Christ and to share the hope that is within us. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Um, boy, it just keeps coming. I'm just looking over at my screen. Apparently, two police officers shot in, uh, in Seattle. Uh, the search continues for the suspect who... Uh, who uh, set a man on fire at Denny's and, and just the, the list of events that are taking place goes on and on and on. I hope you're praying people. We certainly have much to pray about and um, to seek God's direction in the role that we're to play in the culture we find ourselves in in the time we find ourselves in. Well, I'm looking forward to tomorrow for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that on Fridays we try to lighten up. And uh, as I mentioned, Clark Hilton is out for uh, today and, and tomorrow. And so James Blend is going to be engineering. So that's always fun to have him uh, back uh, behind the engineer's booth on a Friday afternoon. So we're going to lighten things up and enjoy a little bit of uh, a little bit of fun. And I don't know about you, but I don't know, by Friday, I'm ready for a little bit more of a lighthearted approach to things. So I hope you will join us for that. A couple of things I want to mention. Uh, KPDQ is inviting all area pastors to our annual KPDQ Pastors Masters Golf Tournament. One of the highlights of the year. Whenever we do stuff with pastors, that's always a great day. But this year's tournament is going to be taking place at the beautiful Langdon Farms Golf Club in Aurora. That's just south of Wilsonville. And the date, Monday, July 24th. It's a full 18 holes of golf. It will be followed by a delicious lunch. The cost is $20, and uh, the first 50 pastors to register will also receive a Pastors Masters ball cap and golf tee. I mean, that in and of itself would send me to the phone, to the, uh, uh, to the uh, keypad, whatever, but uh, register. KPDQ.com, let us know you're coming. We would love to, uh, to host you. Again, the, uh, the cost to attend is just $20. That includes a lunch. And if you're among the first 50 uh, to register, you receive a Pastors Masters ball cap, suitable for framing or at least wearing, and a free golf tee. And that date, once again, is July the 24th. That's a Monday. So uh, looking forward to that. And by the way, for those of you who are wondering, pastors golfing, trust me, most of them aren't that good. You're fine. <laughs> They're spending the majority of their time uh, preparing for uh, for ministry and doing ministry. So nothing to worry about there. But it is our opportunity to just say we'd love to host an, a day where you can get together with fellow pastors, enjoy fellowship with one another. And it's a real uh, joy to do that. Also want to mention that our Experience Israel tour is coming up November 1st through the 10th of this year. You can join Pastor Sean Thornton on this unforgettable and timely faith journey to the Holy Land of Israel. It's during the 50th anniversary of Jerusalem's reunification since the 1967 Six-Day War. So if you're trying to do the math, 50th anniversary, 2017, how can that be? That's how it's uh, being defined. Well, Experience Israel tour is an inspiring faith-oriented and Bible-based 10-day journey. It's going to offer you first-hand insights into Israel's fascinating past, its miraculous present, and promising future while introducing you to its rich spiritual and biblical heritage. I've been on a couple of these tours with Genesis. The, the tour guides are excellent. They know their biblical history. They know their Bible. You're going to explore sites of miracles and parables throughout the Galilee and Jerusalem, worship at the Mount of Beatitudes, Mount of Olives, uh, tour the Golan Heights and Israel's northern border, visit modern Tel Aviv and Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, as well as Masada and the Dead Sea. You'll enjoy enriching Bible studies at uh, key locations on this trip of a lifetime. Your Bible will come alive in a way that's uh, it's a little bit different. In fact, as I read through the scriptures now, and I'm reading about a particular geographic location. I can visualize the distance, the terrain, uh, and so on, and it gives me a a better understanding of what's being uh, explained. As I mentioned, uh, Pastor Sean Thornton is going to be the teaching pastor. He was just a teenager when he stood before the uh, congregation and announced his availability to uh, uh, for Christian ministry. <laughs> so he was, as a very young person, uh, ready to serve, whether conducting 
children's Bible classes, working summers at Christian camps, attending Bible college and seminary school. People saw something very special in him and believed God was, in fact, going to use him in meaningful ways. I love it when a young person recognizes God has his hand on my life. He's ordering my steps, and I want to walk according to uh, his plan. He was just 30 years old when he began to serve as the senior pastor at Bible Center Church in Charleston. In 2008, he answered the call to lead Calvary Community Church, and uh, that is where he is now. So we're looking forward to uh, giving him the opportunity to speak to travelers from all across the country, this listening audience and listeners to Christian radio stations, Salem stations all across the country. So check out uh, the uh, kpdq.com website. Israel is the keyword and to find out more about the Experience Israel Tour. Well, I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we lighten up having a bit of fun on a Friday afternoon and pray for our culture, our country, and for one another. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.